you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you, so please avail yourself of that. And we have found your place in Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear together the word of the living God. Matthew 1, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, for all of it. Not one part of it is a mistake, but Lord, intentionally inspired by you to somehow bring glory to you and be for our good and for our nourishment and for our transformation. So we receive all of it from you with grateful hearts, thankful that your spirit is at work through the reading and the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. May be seated. As we are at the very beginning of our study now of this book of Matthew, we have an opportunity to ask some really big questions, overarching questions, about who Matthew was as a person and about the gospel that he wrote. And as we answer some of these questions together, it's going to orient us for our journey through Matthew, however long that may be. Remember, I'm not making any promises. But these answers will help us better understand what it is that Matthew is trying to communicate as we weave our way through the beautiful parables that Matthew records or or the five beautiful discourses of Jesus that Matthew records and all the other narrative as well. And so one important question for us to ask is, why did Matthew become an author? We know what he was by profession. He was a tax collector. We talked about that last week. And then he was called by Jesus to become a follower of Jesus. And then he became one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. After that, tradition says that Matthew became a preacher. And he preached in, for 15 years in Palestine. And then he went in good missionary style, to other countries like Ethiopia and Macedonia and Syria and Persia. Sounds like a busy and full life to me. So why is it would Matthew decide to pick up a quill and become an author as well? Well, the easy answer to that question and the completely true answer to that question is the inspiration of the Spirit of God. God's Spirit inspired Matthew to write. The Spirit of God put the motivation there. The Spirit of God put a fire in Matthew that he had some important things to say, that he had a really important story that he needed to tell. So in addition to the motivation, we know as well that God actually inspired the words that Matthew wrote. No scripture. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, moved, led by the Holy Spirit. 
And so we know that inspiration is this joint work between the Spirit of God and the one doing the writing. Which means that as Matthew wrote, and this is important, Matthew retained his humanity. Matthew didn't become something other. He did not become divine. Neither did he become unconscious or or enter into some kind of trance or, or comatose state while his hand just mysteriously moved across the papyrus. That's not what happened. Matthew retained his personality, which means this. As Matthew wrote the words that we've just read, the joys of Matthew's life, the joy that was in his heart, it was in his heart as he wrote. The burdens that Matthew experienced in his life, those burdens were in his heart as Matthew wrote what we've read. So we can't separate the man from the, the material. God chose this man, Matthew, and everything that made Matthew, Matthew, to be the one who would compose this story about Jesus. And God would work through all of that to present this truth in this way from this perspective for our good. Now, we know what brought Matthew joy in his life. And that's his relationship with Jesus. We looked at the story last week, right in chapter 9. Jesus comes along, he calls Matthew, and, and Matthew immediately follows him. And then Matthew throws this big party for Jesus, a big banquet. And in all of Scripture, so much of it, it's hard to tell what your favorite thing is. But I tell you, this is one of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture. And that is Jesus at this party at Matthew's house. Because remember what we said last week? Because Matthew was a tax collector, he was universally hated as all tax collectors were. So Matthew's only friends were other tax collectors or sinners. They always go together in Scripture, tax collectors and sinners. And those were all the friends Matthew had, but he invited all of them. And so here's Jesus, the God of the universe, having dinner, talking with, laughing with, maybe praying with these people that would be universally considered as bad company. And there's Jesus in the midst of them. I love it. But guess what? The religious people, the Pharisees, didn't think so much of it. So they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Religious people didn't have a paradigm, unfortunately, for mixing it up with sinful people. Religious people only know the holy huddle, right? You know what the holy huddle is. Stick together. So on hearing their comment, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So here's a great joy of Matthew's life. That Jesus is not religious. Matthew's joy is that he is one of the sick ones. That Jesus made well. His joy is that Jesus loves. For those who didn't get it right, there's mercy. For those who could not get it right, there was mercy. That's the joy in Matthew's heart as he writes. We can guess at what might have burdened Matthew as well. 
Because the burden in Matthew's heart probably flowed from his greatest joy. And his greatest joy is that that Jesus heals the sick. But Matthew looked around at his people, the Jewish people. And he saw that they were not healthy. They were sick people. But they didn't know it. He could look at them. And he could see that they were people of sacrifice. And so they weren't interested in mercy They didn't need mercy because they sacrificed so rightly and so well. They didn't want Jesus to be merciful. To them, God should demand sacrifice. And God should reward those best who sacrificed most rightly. And so Matthew is burdened for these religious people. And as we saw last week, Matthew writes his gospel to evangelize the religious. To evangelize those who are so very, very familiar with the things of God, and yet they were far from God. Let me just draw this distinction for us. It's a common one. You've probably heard it before. Between religion and and true faith, or between religion and Christianity. Because you know what? There are a lot of religious people in the world. And there are a lot of religious people filling up pews on Sunday mornings. This is kind of the common difference. That that the difference between Christianity and every other faith in the world are that all other religions are about people reaching up to God. And you'll find that to be universally true. Religion is about people reaching up to God. Christianity is about God reaching down to man. That's what we're celebrating. God coming to earth. Religion encourages you to seek to appease God. To turn away God's wrath from you by what you do for him. Religion seeks to get you to attempt to turn God's frown upon you. Because you're an angry God. To turn that frown into a smile by performing really well for him. But true faith knows that God's wrath is turned away by what Jesus did for you. And by what you accept by faith. True faith knows that God's frown is turned into a smile. When he looks upon his son Jesus Christ. And his perfect obedience. Even obedience to the point of death. Of dying on the cross. To pay the penalty for sin. That's what turns God's frown into a smile. That's what brings peace to earth. Peace between God and man. And nothing you can do or anyone else can do or has ever done, no matter how religious. See, the Jews at the time of Jesus were trying desperately to reach up to God, to earn his favor. Jesus makes a similar distinction that that I've just read for you. He tells this parable and he tells it to people who were confident in their own religiosity, confident in their own self-righteousness. He told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, religious person. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, 
adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. I wonder what Matthew thought, honestly, when he's hearing Jesus tell this parable, if he blushed a little bit because he knows how bad tax collectors are. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. That's how Jesus draws the distinction. See, religion is a terrible thing. And religion is a terrible thing because it leads people further and further away from God at the very point that they think they are doing what they need to do to become closer and closer to Him. And the Pharisees of the day were leading people down that same path. They were turning people into good religious people, but not people of faith. And a quick look at the book of Acts as we, as we scan it reveals that that was even happening in the church, not just the Jewish people, but even early in the life of the church. People were beginning to believe that faith in Christ was not enough. That's not enough to appease God. That's not enough to turn God's frown to a smile. We've got to do more. We must perfectly obey all the law. Then God will smile on us. Then we will have peace with God. Trying to appease God by what they did. And so no wonder Matthew decides to become an author, right? To kill, to kill religion and to promote faith in Christ. Because religious people are so close to getting it right. But they get it wrong at such important points. Sacrificing, for example, is a good thing. Romans chapter 12 tells us it's a reasonable thing for us to do. To sacrifice for God in light of who He is. And and so the religious are so close. But because the sacrifice doesn't come from a heart of faith, God responds to works-based sacrifice in this way. Isaiah chapter 1. When you come to worship me, Who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offering disgusts me. Wow. Come now. Let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. See, Jesus was born into the world to settle this matter once and for all. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow through faith in Christ alone. Is that good news? So Matthew writes to the religious to tell them how Jesus did this. And so we see that Matthew begins his story of Jesus with a genealogy. And so ask why, Matthew, why start with a genealogy? Matthew could have started this gospel any way he wanted. He could have started at the end of the story. And then the rest of the gospel could have been a flashback. He could have begun it in medias race, in the middle of things. Goes to the middle and then interrupts himself. That's what Matthew could have done. There were no dummy guides to writing gospels when Matthew wrote this. John tells us that Jesus did so many things that if they were all written down, the world wouldn't contain the books that would be written. Matthew could have chosen anything, so why a genealogy? Because Matthew wants to evangelize the the religious, to turn them into people of faith. 
We typically skip these verses, as I skipped them this morning, reading all of those names because genealogies don't interest us. They don't scratch us where we itch. Unless, of course, we're itching to go to sleep in a hurry, then read a genealogy. But that wasn't the case for the Jews, the religious people. Genealogies were important to them. And they were a starting point to help you get your bearing with another person, knowing their genealogy. Should I trust you? Should I not trust you? Should I embrace you? Should I hold you at a distance? Should I include you? Should I exclude you? Those decisions were made based upon your genealogy. Really important to the Jewish people. When Ezra returned to to Jerusalem at the end of the exile to rebuild the temple of God, only those with the right genealogy went with him. Nehemiah quickly followed after Ezra, and he went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. This is what Nehemiah chapter 7 says. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. The following were those who came up, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded. See how they used genealogies? Either you were in or you were out based on having the right genealogy. It's the practice of religious people who are trying to work their way to God. Your pedigree is very important if God is going to accept you. The practice persisted even in the life of the church. And so the Apostle Paul writes to to Titus. He says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies for they are unprofitable and worthless. Then he writes to The young pastor Timothy, as I urged you, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Now, the reason that I point all of this out is that what we pass over as uninteresting, even as unimportant, was very important, very important to the people that Matthew wanted to reach with the good news of the story of Jesus Christ. And so like the Apostle Paul, Matthew became all things to all people in order that some might be saved. Do you think that Matthew wanted to write all these names? Is that what he wanted to do? Probably not. But for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, he thought it was worth it. And so I'm always asking myself, and I hope you're asking yourself, what are you doing to be all things to all people? See, it's easier for us to think about what we want all people to be for us, right? Oh, 
if you would just be this for me. And we think about, dream about how, how great the world would be if, if, if people would, would do for us what we think they ought to do. But instead, we should be asking this question. Who do they need me to be so that they will be in a better place to hear the story of Jesus that I have to tell them? That's what Matthew is doing with his gospel. If he had any hope that his Jewish brothers and sisters would come to faith in Christ, it would be through beginning with the genealogy. And so Matthew doesn't waste the opportunity. He doesn't pander to them. Oh, you want a genealogy? I'll give you one. No, he, he used it. In the moment that Matthew was giving them something they wanted, something that they, they loved, something that they expected, he shocked them with what is unexpected. Look at his genealogy. It's the genealogy of the one who is the Christ, who is the Messiah. But Matthew's genealogy includes people who are outside, outside the nation of Israel. People that good religious people would seek to exclude. Some of the people that he mentions are people of questionable morals. And religious people definitely exclude people with questionable morals. Look in verse 3. First one's mentioned there, Tamar. It's in verse 3. She's originally the daughter-in-law of Judah. Go tell her story really quickly. And Tamar married Judah's oldest son, and he was a wicked guy. And so he died before they had any, had any children. So Judah told his second son, now you've got to marry Tamar, and you've got to produce uh, an heir for your brother. That's just the way they did it. But but the second son was evil too. And he said, no, I'm not going to produce an heir for my brother. And so he died too. Judah had one son left. And Judah's like, I'm not giving my last son to this woman. She's already killed two of them. And so he sent Tamar away. He said, you, you go away. And when my, my youngest son is grown, then I will send for you and you can marry him too. But Judah never sent for Tamar. And so Tamar took matters into her own hands. And she disguised herself as a prostitute, and she sat by the road. And when Judah, her father-in-law, passed, a man with no wife, she was dead. So he, he takes Tamar up on her offer, and she becomes pregnant. And when Judah discovered that the prostitute was actually Tamar, he said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son. Now, we're not going to get into all the Jewishness of this. Other than to say that because of Tamar's action, Judah's line continued. And that's the line through whom David came. And that's the line through whom Jesus would be born. So God's grace is in the genealogy. It was on his people. And Tamar, someone his people would have excluded. Now look in verse 5. Matthew mentions Rahab. And I guess Rahab's morals are not questionable. She was blatantly immoral, this poor woman. She's mentioned eight times in scripture, and six of those times she's referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Please imagine, she couldn't, couldn't get past it. But as it turns out, the prostitute had faith. Please imagine. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below, this prostitute boldly declares. And so God's grace is in the genealogy. And His grace is upon His people. 
His grace is upon Rahab, a person his people would have excluded. Now look at the second part of verse 5. And Ruth is mentioned there. And Ruth is a Moabite. And we know from our study of Deuteronomy. Did y'all know that we studied Deuteronomy for four years? We know because of that study that the Moabites were not supposed to be included in worship for 10 generations because they were such wicked people. The most horrendous thing they did was sacrificing their own children. These were Ruth's people. She was a Moabite. And yet through this woman, Jesus would come because God's grace is in the genealogy. It was upon his people. It was upon Rahab. It was upon Ruth. Someone his people would have excluded. Now look in verse 6. David was the son of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, everybody reading Matthew would know who Uriah's wife is. Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. And it's not that she was a wicked woman. That's not why Matthew doesn't write her name. Matthew is simply highlighting God's grace. He calls her Uriah's wife because she was a married woman. When David saw her and wanted her and called for her, and Bathsheba went to him. And here's David is called in Scripture a man after God's own heart. Unlike the prostitutes, unlike the Moabites, David is the best of the best. And yet he had an affair with a married woman. And when she became pregnant, David had her husband Uriah killed to cover up his sin. And yet through adultery and through murder... Jesus came because God's grace is in the genealogy. It was upon his people. It was upon David. It was upon Bathsheba. Someone that his people could have easily excluded. And so for the sake of his gospel and the story of Jesus, to put Jesus in a better light, in a more acceptable light, look, Matthew could have excluded every one of these names. Who would have known the difference anyway? Matthew let out, left out a lot of names, but he did not. He included them because from the beginning, Matthew wants people to understand something about this Jesus that they need to accept. And that is, he is a God of grace. Religious people... God is a God of grace, and everyone needs grace, even the religious. And we could look at the lives of the vilest of sinners. We could look at the the lives of the most faithful people, and we would still arrive at the same conclusion. Everyone needs the grace of God. They must see Jesus has grace, and he's got Pardon, and he's got pity for prostitutes like Rahab and adulteresses like Bathsheba. We've got to see that Jesus has grace and a heart of welcome to all those who are far off. He brings them near like he did for Ruth the Moabite. They've got to see that Jesus is a God of grace for those who strive to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength as David yet did, and yet he failed miserably. Jesus is from people like the ones listed here. Jesus is for people like the ones listed here. No one is included in the family of God. And no one is excluded based on genealogy or resume. They are worthless to God. You don't have to get it right to be accepted by God.
Is that good news? You and I, we don't have to get it all right to be accepted by God. You don't have to be religious. You just have to have faith. And guess what? If you let yourself off the hook in this way, if you stop working so hard to earn the favor of God that you already have with him because of faith in Jesus, then you'll let other people off the hook as well. You'll stop being so demanding on them. The Rahabs, the Tamars that we encounter in life. You know, religious people are really hard on those kind of people, aren't we? Sometimes we treat them with a little bit of disgust, but God is not disgusted by them. People like them are right here in Jesus' family tree, and they experience His grace. And so let me assure you, when you realize that, along with me, when we receive this grace of God for ourselves, and when we pass this kind of grace onto other people without exclusion, we will absolutely make a difference in this place for Jesus' sake. People will see that you are really a Christian, a Christ follower who is not particularly religious, who's not burdened, who's filled with joy because God loves you anyway, in spite of your sin. Jesus' genealogy proclaims this. And so you and I do what we do out of the depth of love and gratitude we have for the one who has made us well because we were sick and now we're well. Is that good news? By the grace of God. I think Matthew becomes an author because this story of grace must be told. And it must be told through us. I think Matthew includes this genealogy so that religious people will stop working so hard and stop working others so hard so that we might all find our joy in the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word, for all of it. For what you inspired Matthew to write here. And for the depth of the good news that we can find even in a genealogy. Because we see, Lord, the kind of people that you include and embrace and welcome to be part of your family. And what good news for us, Lord, as we look at this list, the kind of people that we see here. Father, I pray that you would enable us not to distance ourselves from them like the Pharisee did, distancing himself from the tax collector because he thought he was so much better. Lord, I pray that you will enable us to, to stand beside them and see that we are them. Though our sins may be different from them, we are sinful nonetheless. And we stand in such desperate need of your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you have lavished your grace on us in Jesus. Father, help us to live by grace. Remind us, Lord, that you're smiling on us not because of who we are, because of what we've done. You're smiling on us because of Jesus and because of our faith in Him. 
Help us to relax. To not work so hard. Because we know that more hard work won't make you love us more. You love us because of Jesus. So we thank you for that. Lord, help us to be bold proclaimers of the good news of the gospel of grace in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.